from Colorado Public Radio and PRX. This is On Something. I have um, very great emotional investment there. Despite all of the segregation and everything else I experienced here, Mildred Barnes Griggs grew up in Mariana, Arkansas in the 1950s. And although segregation certainly left its impression on her childhood, it is not the only thing that marked her experience there. I recall a very nurturing environment. I went to an all-black school. I received very good education. You know, there was support. There was encouragement. Mildred remembers a feeling of community, most of all. A feeling that the grown-ups around her were invested in more ways than one in the future of this town. She's almost 80 now and retired and thinks of herself as one of those grown-ups. The population of the town was and still is majority black, and agriculture is still the region's biggest employer. When I grew up, cotton was king in Arkansas. It was not uncommon for black people to own 200-acre farms. I grew up on a very small farm. My father raised 12 children on his production there on that farm. We were all laborers there for sure, but that was just the way of life, and people owned their land. Since then, farming became more high-tech, and fewer laborers were needed. But then manufacturing came and left this area. Mildred remembers a Coca-Cola plant and some auto parts plants that provided plenty of jobs until they dried up like manufacturing jobs tend to. Fortune is out of season in Mariana. And Mildred says while some people would rather hold out for the next Coca-Cola plant, she sees an emergency unfolding before her eyes. There's been tremendous out-migration. The population is less than half of what it was when I grew up. There are vacant houses everywhere, dormant fields where we knew that Black people had lived and had been productive. Uh, All of those things kill a community. So those are the kinds of things I encountered when I came back. And I was just desperate for ways to help. And after Arkansas voters legalized medical marijuana in 2016, Mildred thought she saw a way to help. I knew it was coming. Thought, well, that's a possibility. If we could get something like that in this community, it may not provide the number of job opportunities that uh, manufacturing had provided in the past, but it would be a way to increase the local economy, the tax revenue and all, so that we could improve the infrastructure of the town, improve the schools, all of those kinds of things, that there would be that kind of benefit. But no matter what kinds of lofty goals she had in mind, she says from the start, she didn't even stand a chance. What I was not prepared for was the corruption that was associated with it. And there there was a lot more sophisticated chicanery in Arkansas than I have ever anticipated. This is On Something, stories about life after legalization. I'm Anne-Marie Awad.
Today, we are talking about how easy it can be to rig the system using the very same measures implemented to keep legal weed tightly regulated and under control. It's this week's installment of Fair Shake, our series looking at the pitfalls on the path to social equity through the lens of legal weed. When Arkansas legalized medical marijuana in 2016, there was no social equity program for its new cannabis industry, like the ones we've talked about in previous episodes. So when medical marijuana was legalized, the regulations were stringent and the competition for licenses was fierce. And ironically, it created a breeding ground for allegations of government corruption, which leaves little room for the little guy. And in this case, Mildred Barnes-Griggs and her team are the little guy. She's not a hedge fund manager or a venture capitalist or any of those things. She didn't get into legal cannabis to cash out. In fact, her interest in the industry came from a different place, a place of concern as an educator and a parent herself. After she graduated from high school, she went to college at the University of Arkansas at Pine Bluff, a historically black college. She got her degree in education and then moved to Illinois to go to graduate school. Then came a PhD, followed by 35 years of teaching in the College of Education at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Oh yeah, and somewhere in there, she also got a law degree. She came back to Mariana with her husband in 2009, and since then, she's kept busy, using that law degree to help black farmers reclaim their land. When I left Arkansas in 1959, there were a lot of social programs that were federally funded programs to help people go to school, Head Start, all of those things. Although I returned to Arkansas to visit family, I just expected to see a level of achievement, accomplishment, a comfort level in the community that was different than what I saw. Do you remember sort of like where the seed of the idea to get into cannabis came from? Yes, I have a friend that I went to high school with. He remained in Arkansas. He's been a community activist all of his life. That's lawyer Ali Neal Jr. A local historian once described him as, quote, black devil incarnate to many of Mariana's whites. Ali opened up the county's only health care facility, went on to become the state's first black prosecuting attorney and then later a judge. Like Mildred, he's retired now and living over in Little Rock. He continued to maintain his interest in Mariana, and we were talking about things that we could do. So there were several of us who had grown up in the community. that We all finished high school around the same time, older people. And we said, let's try for one of those licenses. Why not? We thought we had a really good chance. Ali and Mildred put together a dream team. Between the two of them, they had the legal know-how. But among their other friends, they also had plenty of expertise to spare. And once word got out in town, more people came forward to pitch in any way they knew how. There were former farmers who said, I have the background in cultivation. I can help you with the production part of it. I'm retired from a science profession. I can help you with scientific maintenance, all of those kinds of things. A white farmer came and offered of his land to say, I will rent you the land. 
in a very secure place that was kind of desirable. So once word got out, people were interested in helping and participating and encouraging. Many hands would certainly make light work once they had a license. But first, they'd have to get one. Voters had approved no more than eight in the whole state. I spent 35 years writing grant applications. I thought, this can't be rocket science. Okay, I guess I went in really naive. It actually was rocket science. Okay, no, not really. But some of these applications were as long as a thousand pages, and the fee could be as high as 200 grand. But the process was merit based, and in Mildred's mind, they had merit for days. I was thinking, this is great. You know, the whole notion was that it was to help improve the economy in Arkansas. We wanted to have diverse ownership. We thought, because the Delta is known for farmland, we should be able to do that and not have anybody doubt our ability to grow a crop. We had people who knew how to do what needed to be done. And we applied. We got the resources together. Nobody was wealthy, but we had to be able to show that if we were granted a a license, we could come up with a very sizable amount of money. We had gotten enough investors to be able to do that. We had done all of the things we were supposed to do. And I just assumed that there would be blind reviews of the applications. Any identity would be redacted from the documents and somebody would make fair decisions. They'd be basing the decision on the content of the proposal. That did not turn out to be the case. When voters approved Amendment 98, the Medical Marijuana Amendment, they told the governor to create the Medical Marijuana Commission. It's a five-person body that reviews applications for cultivation and dispensary licenses. The amendment never really gave the governor any criteria for who should be on this commission. And so far, the commissioners have been doctors, pharmacists, lobbyists, and lawyers. The governor appointed the chair of the commission and various other entities were given the opportunity to appoint a commissioner. I'm not sure, and I still have never been able to determine how that was was done. In the summer of 2017, after Mildred dropped off the application at the Department of Finance, these were the people who would be evaluating it. And so she waited and heard nothing for months. At least, she heard nothing from the commission. She says she did start to get calls from other applicants who were also waiting around for the state's decision. And while they were waiting, they were picking up on some strange stuff. Mildred remembers one call from a woman who said she thought she overheard staff at the Department of Finance office coaching an applicant, telling them what they should write down. You're hearing it from other applicants. Huh. It was a while before we got any word of it. Mildred waited more than six months to hear about her application. And all the while, she was part of a whisper network of people who swore something was not right about this process. Finally, in February 2018, the first five winning candidates were announced, and their applications were posted publicly. Mildred's team wasn't chosen, but some details jumped out at her immediately. For example, Osage Creek Cultivation, one of the winners, had hired one of the commissioners as an attorney. 
Another winner, Natural State Wellness Enterprises, was partially owned by well-connected Arkansans, like the head of the state police and the son of a former state legislator. Other winners seemed as though they shouldn't qualify on technical grounds, like one requiring that cannabis facilities not be within 3,000 feet of a school. Mildred and others were given no reason why their applications weren't chosen. So she filed an open records request, and she was able to get a hold of their processed application. After a quick break, Mildred learns why she didn't make the cut. And uh, spoiler alert, even more chicanery on the way. Hey, it's Anne. I just want to take a moment to say thank you. Listeners like you make On Something possible. Hundreds of thousands of people have listened to our podcast since it launched back in 2019. You've been there with us while we've explored everything from CBD to cooking with cannabis to social equity across the entire industry. It is really humbling and I am so grateful. The reporting, the stories told, and the issues explored, you made all of that possible. And if you feel like helping our show, head to onsomething.org and contribute if you can. Once again, thank you so much. Welcome back. When we last left off, Mildred Barnes-Griggs had just gotten her hands on her team's processed application. And hopefully, seeing the feedback from the commissioners would help her figure out why she hadn't gotten a license yet. Commissioners would insert comments. This is your evaluation, and these were the critical comments. Five commissioners looked over Mildred's application to start a cannabis cultivation business. Five commissioners appointed under mysterious circumstances, evaluating applications in a process that is similarly mysterious. And one uh, medical doctor on the commission had said, these people don't have the capacity to operate a cultivation facility. Talking about my team. Based on what? That's it. You never got a chance to ask questions. Because each commissioner had a chance to rank the applications. They used different criteria. The chair of the committee didn't even use a ranking scale. She just read and thought, this one looks good, that one, you know, that sort of thing. So they made qualifying statements as they gave their results to whomever tallied everything. Mildred spent decades working at a university, being on the other side of processes like these. So it made sense that she had some higher expectations for how this would go down. One of my backgrounds is evaluation. And in order to evaluate something, if you've got five people evaluating, you need to be using the same standards. You know, I just I just assume that all of those things would happen. The commissioners would go on to complain that they felt rushed to score the cultivation applications, so much so that they got legislative approval to change the rules and hire an outside group when it came time to score dispensary applications in 2018. That left Mildred and her team in limbo right along with many others who had also applied and were still waiting for an answer. So she and fellow applicants started to sue. We complained about the procedures that were being violated. 
And uh, the judge ruled in our favor and said the whole process had to start over. But then that decision was struck down in a higher court. Well, it was determined that we could not file that complaint because we didn't have standing. We had not been denied. So because you didn't get an official decision from the state, they just told you nothing. We were never told, no, you will not get a cultivation license. Yeah. We were just told you're not among the top eight. And you're just left hanging for a year. Yes. Well, some of us said, let's just sit here because surely some of these violations will necessitate some of those people who have been awarded license for those license to be vacated, voided, if if they really follow the law. But that didn't happen. She couldn't afford to keep litigating their case, so she waited for the state to finally make a decision on their application. And Mildred says after a whole year, the state finally, quietly, just refunded their application fee. How did it feel to get the application fee back after that whole year? It was an empty, it was, you just thought, it was, I felt a sense of disgust. Yeah. You didn't get the entire fee. You just got a small portion of it back. But we need, Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, you didn't get the entire amount. Oh, no. You got a small amount. We needed that to pay legal fees. And legal fees can get out of hand. Only one other applicant successfully sued all the way up to the state Supreme Court. I've been covering the situation in Arkansas for some time, especially with a lawsuit with Abraham Carpenter. Mona Zhang covers state cannabis policy for Politico. And Carpenter was an influential black farmer vying to get a cannabis cultivation license in Arkansas. He submitted an application around the same time as Mildred and her team. And why was Carpenter's application rejected? Because of a typo. They had an ownership percentage written down differently in two parts of the application. But here's the thing. Another white applicant, Delta Medical Cannabis Company, had the same error, but ended up getting a license anyways. So Carpenter brought the issue to court on the basis of racial discrimination. You know, being an influential farmer, he met with lawmakers, he met with the governor's office, he had all sorts of meetings. Everyone told him, sorry, we can't do anything You have to take it to the courts. That's a long and resource-intensive process to file a lawsuit of that nature and take it all the way up to the state Supreme Court. It took him almost two years, but he eventually succeeded where Mildred's team had failed. And he ended up winning the state's sixth cultivation license. And it only happened because he settled out of court, a move which didn't require the state to admit any wrongdoing. And I think his case really highlights the sort of pitfalls that can come as states try to issue marijuana licenses based on merit. Who is deciding merit? I mean, there's a lot of room for influencing and shenanigans. Yeah, this was something that Mildred had mentioned to me that, you know, she's on a team of people who included farmers and included people who really did have expertise in this area. And one of the comments that she saw in her application was, these people have no background in this. 
Yeah. So what is merit? (laughs) Exactly. What is merit? And, you know, different states handle it differently. In the case of Arkansas, it was the commissioners themselves who are politically appointed scoring the applications. You know, what expertise do these political appointees have when it comes to evaluating an application for a marijuana business? And then there's sort of a larger problem with capping the number of licenses. When there's a limited supply, there will always be an outsized demand. Outsized demand means the value goes up and up and up. These licenses can be sold for millions of dollars in some states. Mona says this is what tends to lead to funny business. Yeah, I mean, whenever you have a license cap, there is a huge, fierce competition to get these licenses. And every time most people lose out on licenses, And then you have sort of like a flood of lawsuits to challenge these decisions. And there's also, I think, potential for influence in terms of the merit scoring. What points in the application are going to get extra points? You know, some states have introduced bonus points, which is a whole nother thing that is ripe for exploitation. Ah, yes, bonus points. Mildred and her team experienced this one firsthand. Although there's no proper social equity program in place in Arkansas, this application process did award points to certain applicants who qualified as minorities. There were to be points for minority ownership. Well, we were eligible. However, many of the other white groups put women as their leaders. Arkansas had recently passed a legislation saying all women who are starting business entities would be counted as minorities. So they received the minority points, which gave them an even added advantage. Mildred says the USDA discontinued a similar practice because they found white farmers were just putting their wives' names on applications to qualify as minorities. Another way to undermine an advantage set aside for people of color. What's important to point out is that a lot of these measures, like license caps, merit-based applications, and bonus points, are extremely common. And they tend to be written into cannabis legalization with somewhat good intentions. Like, you know, we might be legalizing this thing, but we're going to keep it on a short leash and under close watch. But by definition, they make the industry exclusive. They create scarcity. In a lot of cases, it's these tight regulations that are keeping the industry inequitable. But as more states come online, Mona says some learn from the mistakes of their predecessors. Arizona, for example, they wanted to have a license cap, but they saw what was happening in other states with the corruption issues. So they decided to issue licenses through a lottery, which is not to say, I mean, lotteries can be corrupt, too. And of course, local control is another issue. Oh, local control. The policy that you can have a say over what happens in your backyard is sacrosanct, or at least pretty close, probably in no area greater than in cannabis regulations. Pretty much every state allows towns, cities, and counties to decide for themselves whether to allow pot businesses. And in the places that do, the decisions about which businesses move forward tend to fall into the hands of local officials. 
It's really hard for lawmakers to pass any sort of law that doesn't have local control. And same for ballot initiatives. You kind of have to give communities a say in this. And, you know, I don't think it's local control itself that results in corruption issues. It just comes down to nitty gritty details of how the law is written. For example, Mona wrote about the mayor of Fall River, Massachusetts. Breaking news to report as embattled Fall River Mayor Jaisal Correa is arrested again. Correa has been charged with extorting vendors for legal marijuana shops. He was led away in handcuffs this morning as an eyewitness. In the case of Fall River, it was solely up to the mayor to decide who got to open up shop and who didn't. Federal prosecutors allege that he took bribes in exchange for host community agreements, which is essentially the sort of like local approval that marijuana businesses need to have in order to get a state license in Massachusetts. According to the federal indictment, Correa and his friends are accused of accepting six-figure bribes in exchange for those host community agreements, along with more than a dozen pounds of marijuana and even a Batman Rolex worth as much as $12,000. And because there is an oversight, it just sort of was allowed to happen. Like I said, a measure that probably seemed like a good idea at the time, but it turned out to be pretty easy to exploit for those who had enough cash. And that's what most of this really comes down to. Any person trying to get into the cannabis industry in any state will tell you that the process is a gauntlet. It's expensive, it's time-consuming, and it's legally really complex, especially when you get into taxes or real estate. Mona says it's this reality that ends up benefiting some over others. There's the issue of systemic racism in this country, right? And that disadvantages Black applicants on so many levels, whether it's a struggle to raise capital, struggle to get a host community agreement in Massachusetts, having political connections, having resources to hire lobbyists, make campaign contributions. I mean, all of these things that are part of inequality in the U.S. factor into why it's so hard to make the cannabis industry more diverse and equitable. And I think that Abraham Carpenter's case shows this, that you can be a Black applicant and succeed, but, I mean, all those years of litigation, and finally he gets a license, everybody else has a head start. So even if you are a Black applicant who ends up succeeding in that process like he did, his competitors have the first mover advantage in the market. There are so many institutional barriers there. Mildred Barnes Griggs left Mariana in 1959 and returned 50 years later to a community still struggling, still part of an exploitative system. At one time, Mildred saw legal cannabis as a way to break the cycles that kept her community impoverished, but now she feels like all of that potential is wasted. Not every license holder has even harvested a crop by now. And the state hasn't even issued all eight licenses yet because some of the winners are suing to stop that. And on top of everything else, an FBI investigation into the licensing process is now underway. Meanwhile, Mildred has given up on cannabis. But she hasn't given up on Mariana. 
lot of younger people became very disillusioned and just didn't see any prospect of a bright future in the Delta. They left their parents when they finished high school. Once the parents died, often, I guess legally you could say they abandoned their land. They didn't come back. And when they did come back, other people had bought that land by paying the tax. It's called heirs' property, one of the many causes of land loss for Black farmers across the South. Most of her time is spent reversing that land loss. Another way she's trying to ensure that Black farmers in the Delta have some control over their futures. It's this notion that at some point you've got to change. Arkansas is working hard, our state economic commission, to try to attract industries. And I keep telling my local legislator, nobody's coming here. (laughs) And Arkansas will continue to struggle. It's among the poorest states in the nation and for a reason. And now it's a part of an unfortunate tradition. Everyone who got a piece of the industry in Arkansas was already rich, already running a business, or two, or three, already well-connected, already powerful. Across the country, that's mostly what the cannabis business looks like, everywhere. Because it's mostly what businesses look like, everywhere. So Mildred has a point. The outcome doesn't change until the system changes. And until then, expect plenty more chicanery. On the next episode of On Something, we look at a core promise of social equity, the ability to come out of the shadows and join the legal, regulated market. Except many feel there's no real way to do that. They've got a letter they sent out that says, you know, you have a history of cannabis farming, and if you do it this year, we're going to take your farm. Next time, we meet a humble cannabis farmer who says California's 2016 legalization were where all his troubles began. On Something is a labor of love, reported and written by me, Anne-Marie Awad. It's a production of Colorado Public Radio's Audio Innovation Studio and CPR News. Special thanks to Mona Zhang, whose reporting for Politico inspired this episode. Today's episode was produced by Luis Antonio Perez and Rebecca Romberg. Our editor is Dennis Funk. Find a list of all of the talented people who helped to make this episode in the show notes. This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people. This podcast is also made possible by Colorado Public Radio members. Learn about supporting Colorado Public Radio at CPR.org. Evaluating applications in a way, in a process. I have an extra word in here. Stupid. (laughs) It's on a roll, too.